Hey guys, and welcome back to History Written by the Losers. I'm Annika. And I'm Sudha. And this week, we're going to be talking about post-Soviet democracies. The Soviet Union was around for a long time. I remember reading about the USSR in middle school. And it started forming really after the Bolshevik Revolution, when Russia established Soviets all around what was called the Eastern Bloc. It came down in 1991 during Gorbachev's tenure, which I also remember quite well. And it was viewed as a great victory for democracy in America. And it was touted as this brand new life for all the people in these newly independent countries. And somehow it felt like the USSR dissolving was a victory for the capitalist way of life over the communist way of life. Yes. And in a sense it was, but the problem is that it really wasn't a new life for the people living in these countries. And these countries face so many problems now because of the fall of the Soviet Union. So even in the 1950s, when the USSR was going strong, there were still a lot of independence movements that were surging at that time. So one of them includes Hungary's independent peace movement that was aborted in 1956. So the Soviet Union had taken control of Hungary by that point, and in October of 1956, thousands of protesters took to the streets to demand a more democratic political system, and they wanted freedom from the Soviet oppression. However, vicious street fighting broke out, and the Soviets' great power ensured their victory because they were such a strong empire. Right, Soviet tanks rolled into Budapest to crush the uprising. Yes, and an estimated 2,500 Hungarians died and more than 200,000 fled as refugees. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's interesting to note that at that time, as Soviet tanks were bearing down on the streets and the protesters, the United States did nothing beyond issuing public statements of sympathy for their plight. Even though, at that time, they were very into supporting democracy in a lot of communist regions. So one of the major parts of the Soviet Union was the Warsaw Pact. And it was composed originally of the Soviet Union and Albania, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Hungary, Poland, and Romania. And the treaty basically provided for a unified military command and maintenance of the Soviet military units on the territories of all of the other participating states. Essentially, the equivalent of NATO for Soviet states. However, the Warsaw Pact slowly started crumbling during the 1980s and 90s, especially once Mikhail Gorbachev came into power. Gorbachev's decision to allow elections with a multi-party system and create a presidency for the Soviet Union began the slow process of democratization that eventually ended communist control and contributed to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yes. So during his tenure, Gorbachev had two main policies, perestroika and glasnost. Perestroika incorporated all of the economic reforms that took place, including laws that allowed for the creation of cooperative businesses and restrictions that were peeled back for foreign trade. These were meant to jumpstart the sluggish Soviet economy, but instead government spending soared and there was a huge inflation of food prices and other important costs 
and the Soviet Union. The other policy, Glasnost, was meant for government transparency. However, this did not have the effects that Gorbachev wanted it to have. Instead, shocking revelations about past abuses under the Soviet system came to light, and they accidentally exposed a lot of the corruption and the inefficiencies of their current Soviet system, which turned a lot of the people against the government. Along with perestroika and glasnost, one of the major things that led to the fall of the Soviet Union was Gorbachev's deep and personal aversion to violence. A witness recalls Gorbachev saying in the late 1980s, We are told that we should pound the fist on the table. Generally speaking, it could be done, but one does not feel like it. So that aversion to violence is what led to a lot of the movements that started surging in the Soviet Union that Gorbachev refused to put down. And because of the growth of nationalism and the surges of independence movements that were happening in the Soviet Union that Gorbachev refused to put down, these movements led to a coup that was staged and designed to topple Gorbachev. It failed, but this also further destabilized the Soviet system. And by the end of 1989, the first national representative public opinion survey found overwhelming support for competitive elections and the legalization of parties other than the Soviet Communist Party. As the years continued, more and more Soviet people were in support of transitioning to a market economy. Right. But events did not unfold exactly as Gorbachev or anyone planned. Norman Davies offers an interpretation in his book Vanished Kingdoms, The Rise and Fall of Nations and States. Simply put, after an empire dissolves, uh, which is far more an economic than a political event, so the Soviet Union was not defeated by a political idea. It was simply because the ruling gerontocracy had simply exhausted the means and the energy to run an empire. So painting this in an economic light actually makes more sense than calling it a victory for democracy over communism. So, once the Berlin Wall fell, citizens in Eastern European countries like Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, and Romania all staged protests against their pro-Soviet governments, again following in that trend. And other countries like Belarus and Ukraine followed suit, and they eventually created the Commonwealth of Independent States. By the end of 1989, eight of the nine remaining republics had declared their independence from Moscow. Later on in the year, in Eastern Europe, the Warsaw Pact was formally declared non-existent, and the Soviet Union finally ended. After the Soviet Union ended, there was a lot of conflicts that emerged because of this sudden shift. One of the main things that happened was that there was a surge in crime and corruption. When the Soviet government fell, the Russian Mafia, which was struggling to survive at the height of communism, stepped in to fill that power void, and they started taking in ex-KGB officers, police officers, and Soviet army officers who were looking for steady employment. They extorted the public in exchange for providing security and enforcing laws. Yes. Between 1985 and 1992, the crime rate nearly doubled. So in a sense, when the Soviet Union dissolved, keeping in mind the unrest in people's mind about all the crime during the Soviet regime, 
the collapse of the Soviet Union actually led to increasing crime rates. But that wasn't all. Each individual post-Soviet country had their own problems. One such country was Ukraine. Ukraine actually has a long and interesting history of its people spanning the centuries. I actually recently read a very good book about the history of Ukraine and it's very impressive. However, in 1991, Ukraine declared independence following that attempted coup against Gorbachev in Moscow. And following that, about 250,000 Crimean Tatars and their descendants returned to Crimea because of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And Crimea is a part of Ukraine that is also very near to the border of Russia. Right. A lot of us know only one thing about Ukraine nowadays, and that is that Chernobyl is in Ukraine. But Ukraine actually had a very strong economy during the Soviet years, even though there was a lot of uh, repression of its peoples. There were presidential elections in Ukraine, and Leonid Kuchma came to power, succeeded Leonid Kravchuk in 1994. And they adopted a constitution, they adopted a new currency, and they were on their way towards democratization very well. However, this didn't really mean much because by 2004, a revolution was on its way. The opposition leader Viktor Yushchenko launched mass protest campaigns over rigged elections, which had given victory to the pro-Russia candidate. And the Supreme Court actually had to step in and annul the poll results. One of the most interesting parts about this revolution is that there was a morning news program that updated the viewers on the Central Electoral Commission's decision. And when they were broadcasting, the woman who translated the broadcast into sign language decided to send a very different message from what the election commission was saying. And she told Time magazine that when the presenter started to read the news, I addressed all deaf viewers. Yushchenko is our president. Do not believe the electoral commission. They are lying. So after she said that, there was a huge political protest that started forming. And her silent rebellion was one of the most defiant protests of the Orange Revolution. So because of these mass protests, the election was rerun. And Viktor Yushchenko, the opposition leader who called for the rerun, actually won. And during his term, relations with Russia soured. But in 2010 of February, Viktor Yanukovych, the original candidate, ran again, and he was declared the winner of the second round of presidential elections. And he started this pro-Russia government. And in 2010, later on that year, the parliament voted to abandon NATO. Right. They had actually not been even admitted to NATO, but they decided that they were not going to pursue any aspiration towards NATO membership because the government was heavily pro-Russia. So there were lots of protests that kept happening over the years between 2010 and 2014, protesting the withdrawal from Western influence in Ukraine. In 2014, Russian forces annexed Crimea. And this is a big deal because throughout many of the post-Soviet countries, there are a lot of what are called frozen conflicts. And they are conflicts that are now basically stopped in place because no fighting has taken place, but no resolution has been brought up yet. So one of these is Crimea. 
And Crimea is, like we mentioned before, the land between Ukraine and Russia. And this prompted a big East-West showdown. And the U.S. and European Union imposed harsher sanctions on Russia. And even now, there is no resolution. Crimea is still just there, but there is no active fighting. And as you remember what we said about the people in Crimea had actually returned after the fall of the Soviet Union to their ancestral lands, and it is still in dispute. Anyway, Ukraine's history is continuing to be colorful and vacillating between pro-Russia and pro-West. In 2019, they had elections and actually a very popular television comedian, um, Zelensky, won the presidential election runoff in a landslide victory. He took office in May and by October 2019, he was embroiled rather heavily during the U.S. election cycle in the impeachment process for President Trump. Another one of the frozen conflicts that we mentioned was the conflict in Transnistria. And Transnistria is the land between Ukraine and Moldova. And this conflict is also the last secessionist conflict in the post-Soviet space that remains frozen because both sides cannot agree on where the boundary line is, yet there is still no ongoing fighting. So Transnistria is another one of these lands that is still incredibly disputed. So a lot of these revolutions in the post-Soviet bloc countries have actually been given the names of colors and they've been called the color revolutions. So we talked about the orange revolution in Ukraine and Georgia had its very own rose revolution. But the story of why it's called the rose revolution is a little different from all the others. Yes. So Georgia, the country, not the state, uh, had its Rose Revolution in 2003. And this was during Eduard Shevardnadze's tenure. But there are multiple reasons why this revolution occurred. One of them was that the opposition leaders and parties had developed a leeway for action that didn't exist anywhere else in a lot of post-Soviet countries. Another one was that Georgian state was crippled by corruption and was extremely weak. Along with this, the key opposition leaders in Georgia were united, unlike many other counterparts in other countries. The main three leaders of the Georgian Rose Revolution was Misha Saakashvili, Zurab Zvania, and Nino Burjanadze. Together, they were able to overcome their individual differences for the betterment of Georgia as a whole. But one of the main events that started the Rose Revolution was the Georgian government's failed attempt to pressure Rostavo 2 TV in November 2001. Rostavo 2 TV powerfully shaped public opinion and it produced the biggest public protest after this corruption was brought to light because people realized that the government was trying to censor their news. Unfortunately, in other countries, this led to a strengthened conviction of repressive rulers who were trying to prevent the emergence of analogous TV stations. The final reason why Georgia was ready for the Rose Revolution was because of the economic conditions that had been deteriorating for years. So finally, in November of 2003, tens of thousands of peaceful demonstrators took to the streets and they each held a rose and soldiers from the Georgian army actually joined them. But that's why it's called the Rose Revolution because they held up roses in these signs of peace. And eventually, Misha Saakashvili entered the parliament building along with thousands of his supporters and he forced his way to where Mr. Shevardnadze, the current incumbent, was and he held a long-stemmed red rose above his head and shouted resign. 
Mr. Shevardnadze's bodyguards rushed him out of the parliament building by the back door and power changed hands in Georgia at that moment. So the next year, Mr. Saakashvili was elected president and Georgian parliament passed constitutional amendment. Many former government officials were jailed for corruption and embezzlement charges once Saakashvili became president. And the Rose Revolution had a major impact on the other countries because it was an inspiring victory for democracy. It showed that peaceful conflict resolution could happen because not a single drop of blood was shed during this Rose Revolution. The Rose Revolution helped pave the way for many other post-Soviet countries, including Armenia. Right, and Armenia had their Velvet Revolution in 2018. So, in Armenia, Serge Sargisyan was the Armenian Prime Minister. He had two terms of presidency already completed and he was trying to find a backdoor way to get to a third term. Nikol Pashinyan was the opposition leader who was protesting against this and conducted a 14-day protest march in 2018 April and this march arrived at the parliament. He was actually detained and arrested overnight in April. The next morning, however, he was released and the prime minister resigned and admitted that he got it wrong after popular opinion turned against him, including soldiers who then joined the protests. But this did not lead to a straightaway resolution. There was a lot of conflict after this resignation because the ruling Republican Party refused to back Nicole Pashinyan as the future candidate. However, in a gust of magical realism, as some call it, Parliament named Pashinyan as the acting prime minister because they realized that they either had to bite the bullet and support Pashinyan or they would face a modern day storming of the Bastille because the people were swelling with anger. So Russia's actions were actually counterproductive because it falsely believed that there was a Western expansionist agenda going on in Ukraine and Georgia and it responded harshly and this pressure actually made Georgia and Ukraine more determined to pursue their pro-Western orientation. Along with these two countries, one of their border countries, Azerbaijan, is also getting ready for a revolution because the incumbent Ilham Aliyev has been in power for 16 years and the crisis of 2014 opened the eyes to a lot of the Azerbaijani people because oil revenues started declining and there was a huge economic crisis. Many Azerbaijani youth activists were inspired by the Egyptian uprising and they were calling for anti-government demonstrations this year in March during quarantine. They planned a revolution virtually. It didn't amount to much, but it proves that they are ready for a revolution and that is on its way. In these countries, there are also a lot of frozen conflicts, just like in Ukraine and Moldova, because of the sudden dissolution of the Soviet Union. Between Armenia and Azerbaijan, there is a border region claimed by both of them called Nagorno-Karabakh, which is at risk for renewed hostilities because mediation efforts are failing. Georgia also has a land conflict. South Ossetia, there was a brief war between Russia and Georgia over this area in 2008. So most of the places in that region are ready for revolution and have ongoing frozen conflicts.
one final post-Soviet country that we wanted to touch on was Belarus. Belarus and Russia have had generally good relations and it hasn't really had a huge revolution as some of the other countries have. Uh, but there are issues um, that are going on in Belarus. Russia stopped its uh, periodic deliveries of crude oil and gas to Belarus and this escalated tension between the two sides. There was a treaty that they had signed uh, back in 1999 and that treaty was actually based on parity which means that Belarus has to agree to each decision for that treaty to be actually functional and implemented but Moscow would never give Minsk equal say on many issues and so this treaty has never been actually executed. Along with this, within Belarus itself, there are a lot of political tensions and unrest. That's right. The incumbent president, Lukashenko, actually has just now declared himself the winner in, in parliamentary elections that happened this month. And there are widespread protests in the streets of Belarus right now, protesting an election results that people don't accept. So the main thing that we haven't yet talked about was Russia. Russia is one of the most important parts of the former Soviet Union, and US and Russia have a very complicated relationship now. So the US and Russian modern relations have been defined by the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think the way we view it is very different from the way Russia views it, to say the least. Washington sees an infinite expanse of democracies freed by the collapse of the so-called evil empire. Moscow, meanwhile, sees nothing other than the impending strangulation of Russia by NATO's new members. So William J. Burns, who was U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, actually wrote an article about his experiences with Russia. And one thing that stood out to me was that he says in the 1990s, the country was in the midst of three simultaneous historical transformations, the collapse of communism and the transition to a market economy and democracy the collapse of the Soviet bloc and the security that it had provided to historically insecure Russia, and the collapse of the Soviet Union itself and with it an empire built over several centuries. None of that could be resolved in a single generation, let alone a few years, and none of it could be fixed by outsiders. Greater American involvement would not have been tolerated. So even now, the American relationship with Russia and Moscow is very bizarre and different than any relation we have with any other country. But one of the main things that we have to take away from the fall of the Soviet Union is that it has impacted our world in measures that we can't even understand right now at this point. But we view it as this great freedom for a lot of these countries that were part of the Eastern Bloc. But looking at what has happened since the collapse of the Soviet Union and how many of these democracies or so-called democracies are falling apart and how many of these countries are in economic crises and how they are facing lots of different problems all at once, land crises, political crises, environmental crises, it's important that we note that all of these stem back to the tumultuous fall of the Soviet Union. Democracy is not easy. It's not easy for it to flourish unless a 
various facts and factors come together. Democracy really requires a very aware electorate. It requires a fair and impartial media, and it requires a belief that the system has not been corrupted. If these things don't happen, democracy actually can be a much more destabilizing way of government. And I think that these countries are just working their way towards becoming stable democracies. Yes, democracy is hard. Even the U.S., a democracy that has been established for centuries, still struggles with having a fair and just country, which includes having fair elections with no foreign interference. But one of the things that we all can do in order to support our democracy and other emerging democracies across the world are to educate ourselves on the important issues and on the history of these issues, as well as encouraging everybody you know to go out and vote. Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed. This is going to be the penultimate episode of the season, so make sure you tune in next week for the final episode. After that, we will be releasing episodes once a month, so make sure you stay subscribed. This has been History Written by the Losers. <laughs>